You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Kelly Deals, and Deals is spelled D-I-E-L-S. I came across Kelly's work in early 2018 when the algorithms put me in a new filter bubble after my blog post went viral. It seemed that now I was seeing a lot of people's work around those who critique systems of oppression. Kelly is a wordsmith, and she has a masterful way of bringing together words into long-form essays that keep me riveted right until the last paragraph. And in this day and age where we don't have a lot of attention to sit and read long copy, I'm amazed at how well Kelly is able to arrest my attention with her long essays. One of the things that Kelly has done is she has reclaimed the word feminist. Too often, the word feminism is associated with radical women. But more importantly, for those who identify with a marginalized or oppressed group, feminism is just another form of oppression. For many Black, Indigenous, and women of color, they feel outside the feminist movement because we must put our gender first and ignore all other issues having to do with race or disability or religion or gender expression or gender identity and so on. In particular, the feminist movement tends to exclude rather vocally trans women, which is often offensive to Black, Indigenous, and other women of color who see the work of trans women to be very important because it's often trans women at the forefront of fighting for women's rights. And Kelly has done a really masterful, as I said, masterful job of reclaiming the term feminism and has been able to redefine the word so that it fits in with her work around critiquing systems of oppression. After experiencing both a personal and professional setback towards the end of 2018, Kelly kind of disappeared online. She didn't post on her blog anymore. She wasn't sending out her email newsletters. And although I had enjoyed her work, she kind of faded from my view. And then it was in the fall of 2019 that there was a resurgence. She started posting again. She started sending out her email newsletters. And because I knew she was on the West Coast and I was going to be there to launch my multi-city tour, I reached out to Kelly to see if she would be open to meeting with me over coffee to have a chat. We ended up meeting for two and a half hours in New Westminster, British Columbia, very beautiful, beautiful, beautiful city or town on the east side of Vancouver proper. And we had such an enriching conversation. Once this podcast launched, I wanted Kelly to come on and talk about the power of naming things. 
She coined a phrase called the Female Lifestyle Empowerment Brand, or FLEB for short, where she uses examples of the way in which wellness gurus and women coaches prop up a culture of white supremacy through their branding and marketing copy. It's actually rather brilliant what Kelly has done. And because she's such a wordsmith and is able to put words together so eloquently, I thought it'd be important to have a conversation around the power of naming things and why that's so critical in our walk as we continue to critique systems of oppression. We also conversed about the ways in which to protect the names that you coin because you want things to get out there and have people use the term you coined so that it helps them name a thing, but at the same time to protect those words so that people don't erase you from the creation of that term. So we spoke a little bit deeper about that. You'll find this interview truly enriching as I have. And I know that you're going to take away some gems around the power of naming things. Let me share a little bit more about Kelly. Kelly Deals is a feminist educator, writer, and coach. She specializes in feminist marketing for culture makers. She's here to raise awareness about how the business-as-usual formulas we learn everywhere actually reproduce oppression. She develops and teaches alternate feminist marketing tools to help us do it differently and better. You can find out more about Kelly by going to www.kellydeals.com. Kelly, how are you? I'm doing great, and I'm so happy to be here with you today, Lisa. You know, your Sunday love letter is just everything. That means so much to me. I call it a love letter for a reason, because I literally pour love into it, and hours and hours of time. And it's like one of the things I'm most proud of across the last 10 years is that love letter. There's conventional wisdom out there that says when you send out an email newsletter, it needs to be so long and you need to include these sections, but yours is just so anti that. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so rich and it's so beautiful and it's so well-researched and well-thought. I can tell you're a deep thinker. So thank you for that gift. Well, thank you for reading it and noticing it and telling me that it impacts you like that. That's the deep work. You're a deep thinker. You're a deep feeler. and so. I'd like to start off with this question, which is, tell me who you bring into your work. In other words, who are the ancestors in your lineage, both living and passed on, who inform what you do today? So there's, you know, intellectual ancestors, you know, like creative ancestors, and there's biological ancestors. There are things that I am taking forward from my lineage. And there are things that I'm deliberately leaving behind. So I think sort of spiritually, intellectually, the ancestors are all the feminist theorists and activists whose work prepared, like my work wouldn't exist without them. So I'm thinking Audre Lorde in particular. I'm thinking Gloria Steinem, Naomi Wolf's The Beauty Myth, Pat Parker. 
Oh, Chantal Mouffe, who's perhaps more academic, but it's like this left-wing socialist, deconstructionist, Marxist thinker (laughs) who wrote how valuable conflict is. And so she wrote this book called The Return of the Political probably 20 or 30 years ago that really has influenced me. Dr. Sarah Ahmed, who wrote Living a Feminist Life. All of those people have influenced the way that I think. And The Second Shift... That book and the name of the person is not escaping me because I'm on the spot. But that's a a significant (laughs) book in my life as well. And then, you know, I have professors who saw sparks in me, who carried me forward. Dr. Barbara O'Neill, who hired me as a research assistant when I was an undergrad, which is just unheard of. So those are some of my intellectual and spiritual feminist ancestors whose work made my work possible, made my thinking possible, who thought thoughts that helped me build thoughts on top of that. And then in terms of actual genealogical lineage, like where do my people come from? My dad's parents immigrated from Holland right after World War II. And so came out of a very traumatized background where we lost a lot of relatives because the Nazis occupied Holland and lots of our relatives went missing. And on my mom's side, That's a little bit more of a question mark. As often happens in white colonial nations, white immigrants come and their histories get erased. They just sort of get folded into the identity of white Canadian. So that's a bit of a question mark. I don't really know the ancestry of that side of my family. And also, I do a lot of ancestry work. And because of patriarchy, often women are unknown in the family tree. Yes. And so it's been interesting to see that I've been able to trace, especially a lot of my male ancestors, but for many of the female ones, their names remain a mystery. This is actually significantly on my mind. I'm about to do some work on this with one of my clients and one of my friends. Her name is Treva Woods. And she's doing some work around helping women figure out their lineages and trace the matrilineal side of their work and not from a like historical she's not doing this as a an expert on genealogy but like showing us what she's learned in her own journey and then figuring out what self-care rituals and spiritual rituals we can put in place to keep our cups full without spiritually appropriating from other people and other cultures so i'm interested in doing this as something i'm doing going forward but even this question is animating the way i'm doing business lisa because i have a program called feminist marketing school And I am renaming it Flora. So in this fall, we'll see that. But I'm renaming it Flora. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why. So the root of Flora is Flor, which is the same as Flourish. And that means to flower, to bloom. It means efflorescence. And flourishing is my end goal for all of us. So Flora speaks to flourishing. Flora also speaks to an emergent sensibility where we're getting out of the linear grind culture Here's the system, the structure, the solution, the formula you must rock, and more sort of about opportunities and shifts and organically emerging into things. And Flora is the name of my great-grandmother. And she was very special in my life. And I have a real soft spot for her. And nobody ever wanted to name any of their children after her because it was an old-fashioned name. And so I feel that by naming my big offering in the world Flora, that I'm speaking to her and to the lineage of women in my family who have been forgotten. Oh, goodness. I just have to let that sink for a moment. Sink, sink, sink. 
because it's so beautiful and brilliant. Thank you. It means a lot to me because it, it encompasses all of those things that are important to me. And so as a mother mm-hmm. of five children, yes. Oof, how do you do it? <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, well, one of my children is my stepson who is a grown-up person who's 24 and lives on his own and is a flourishing member of society. So he puts very little demands on me (laughs) at this point in time. (laughs) Although I did co-raise him from the time he was 14 years old. But the other four are in range in ages of between five and 16 years old. So I have two teenagers and I have two little ones. And how do I do it? I don't know. Probably there is a way in which, because there's a whole bunch of them, that they're kind of co-raising each other and they play with each other and they enjoy each other and they hang out together. So there's not quite as many, like, let's play with me demands. Yes. <laughs> but there is the multiplication factor of like five lunches to pack, four lunches <laughs> to pack, four meals. Every, you know, it seems like I'm constantly cooking. So there's that. But it's really a joy. Like my children are just marvels and I enjoy them and they exhaust me, but it's a joyous exhaustion. I imagine. And one thing that you've made clear is that your children have African ancestry. And so you're mothering these children who do not look, I mean, they resemble you, of course, because of DNA, but don't look like you due to skin color. Right. And they have a very different experience in the world than I do. There's a a responsibility that goes with that. Yes. And so that's my question to you. Is your woman with unmerited skin color privilege? Mm -hmm. And here you are operating in this world. And of course, you have other identities that may marginalize you. So how do you, a woman with skin color privilege, raise children who don't have that same privilege? So, I mean, it's my job to be like staunchly in their corner at all times. And I have to be building my analysis continually so that I can spot things and see things and be sensitive to things and understand what their experience is like in the world. And this goes beyond sort of the standard things of like, do you know how to braid their hair? Like, of course, and that's, <laughs> right. you know, it goes way beyond that. It goes on like, what happens to my daughter when she goes to the grocery store and someone wants to touch her hair? I need to be aware of those realities. What happens to my daughter when she gets called the N-word at school, which happens regularly. And Canadians are just not aware of that. You and I are Canadians, so I, I want to speak on that for a second. Yes. But Canadians are so smug about this. White Canadians are so thinking that racism is an American problem and not a Canadian problem. So it's me constantly looking around the corner to see what my children are going to experience and making sure I'm ready in all ways, like emotionally, politically, analytically, that I am the champion and can be there for them and can help them like process those experiences. If I didn't have a high degree of like political analysis and liberation orientation, they wouldn't be able to parse those experiences with me. So I need to be able to understand what they're going through, even though I haven't experienced it. I need to be aware of what their experience is going to be so that we can talk about it and strategize about it and that they have a safe place to like let their hair down and speak on it. So Kelly, the question that comes to mind is how are you able to create a safe space for your mixed race children without waffling into your own fragility? I think fragility is about loyalty. So what happens with my children when they are in pain because white supremacist systems have harmed them, 
my loyalty is to them. My loyalty is not to whiteness and white supremacy. So it doesn't trigger fragility because I've already made an explicit decision about where my loyalties are. My loyalties are to justice. My loyalties are to life. My loyalties are to my children. So it doesn't activate this question, this implicit question in me, which is, am I loyal to these systems that have harmed you? That's when fragility comes up because now we have a conflict that we're trying to manage, like an internal psychological conflict that we're trying to manage. And it activates us because it questions the content of our character, which is why people break down. And this is all happening, I think, at the subconscious level that we don't even, we don't consciously know what's happening. But that's what I think is happening is this, there's a question about loyalty. What systems are you loyal to? And that's why I think in those spaces, that I'm not getting activated because my loyalties are very, very clear. And I think that's what we as white people and people with dominant identities need to do is make an explicit decision about where our loyalties lie. Do they lie to justice and with life <laughs> or are they in those systems of harm? And then, yeah, we're going to feel fragile about it because there is an ethical, moral, spiritual question that's getting activated. Wow. And it's interesting to see that because the work of exploring one's unconscious biases is the work of dismantling this identity that has been cultivated by the dominant culture and an identity that is rooted in something that's manufactured and fake and false. And it's something that gets internalized below the level of consciousness, but consciousness is what dissolves it. So when we rise up these like internal biases that are floating below the level of consciousness, when we explicitly look at them and raise them to the level of consciousness, like that's where they stop taking hold. So anytime that something unconscious, like an unconscious trigger is happening, when we look at it explicitly and surface it and talk about it and make a decision about it, then that unconscious sequence stops working. But of course, that requires work. It definitely definitely requires work. And it's not a one and done thing. It's a constant returning to it and unearthing it and making sure the weeds don't take root again. And what I also think about this situation is living in an oppressive system, when you have a dominant identity, it requires dissociation, right? Like Because we're witnessing abuse, but we have to dissociate from it and pretend it's not happening. And so like, it does harm to the people with dominant identities too. But that's why we have to unearth that and understand that like, liberation has to happen across the board or we're all going to get harmed. Wow. So coming back to my children and how being their champion and their support and their soft place and their ally against the harm that they're experiencing... What I know to be true is I don't have their experiences in the world. So I can't teach them how to be Black women or how to be Black men. But what I can do with my own example is teach them how to be free. I'm just letting that sink for a moment because that's a powerful, powerful quote. Well, and freedom isn't specific to identities. It's something that's available to all of us if we do the work of unearthing the oppression that we've internalized. Oh boy, I love that. I love your use of words. And we're going to talk about words and the meanings that they hold a little bit later on. I want to focus on now is taking a look at your own work where you call us to be culture makers. Mm. And 
for yourself, you know, you have skin color privilege, but then you also have marginalized identities mm-hmm. where being woman, being fat, being fat, and then what other, however else you identify. Did you want to add something? Well, I just think power is a complex thing and identity is a complex thing. And I think this is one of the interesting things or one of the truths that doesn't get spoken enough, but all of us are both oppressors and oppressed. Well, not all of us, but most of us have complex identities where we hold marginalized identities and we hold dominant identities. And our identities can't be collapsed into any of those one things, although in certain contexts, certain identities invoke other people's biases against us. But I just, I think it's so important to talk about that complex interplay of identity and power because power is not just this fixed thing. It's relational. So in one situation, I might have a lot of power where my white skin is activating a certain kind of treatment. And then in another situation, my fatness or my femininity might be activating a bias against me. So it's just a very complex interplay that we need to attend to because if we don't, we inadvertently erase people's identities. And that's where the culture making piece comes in is that we are all, this is the way I think about it. We are all culture makers at every single moment of our lives. Because if all of us disappeared tomorrow off the planet, then all of our cultures would also disappear. So we think that we are born into one thing, which we are, right? We're born into cultures of injustice right now. So we're born into a thing, but it's not static. And it requires us to carry it forward. And so there are things in my lineage that I do not want to carry forward. And I don't have to co-sign. And I can do something different. And that's what I want us to know about culture makers is we're all culture making even when we're not aware of it. If we're just letting culture flow through our mouths and hijack our lives and co-opt our bodies, then we're reproducing the culture that we've been born into. But we can make an explicit decision about that and decide to consciously engineer or grow a different kind of culture using our words, using our relationships with each other, using our art, our contributions, our work, our community building. We can do things differently. So we're culture making whether we know it or not. The challenge is to know it and then decide consciously what you want your culture making contribution to be. And so how can we ensure that when we are envisioning what culture looks like that's bias-free, that's oppression-free, what can we do now to move to that reality? I mean, someone who's been a big influence on me, and I should have cited this in the lineage piece that you'd asked me about, is Dr. Barbara J. Love. So Dr. Barbara J. Love is a Black academic and teacher who has this framework for a liberatory consciousness. And she says there's four steps to building a liberatory consciousness, which is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about culture making. And the first stage is awareness. So being aware that there are certain issues and structures at work and understanding that. So that's our first step is to learn more about that. And what usually happens is people get aware and then they start like taking action on things. But there's actually an intermediary step or two steps where you become aware and then you have to build your analysis. So you need to be taking in information, you need to be learning, you need to be changing your thinking, you need to be connecting dots inside your own sort of internal cosmos. You need to be drawing the lines between those stars and making constellations and understanding things independently. So in the awareness stage, you're just consuming information and you're understanding 
other people's conclusions. In the analysis stage, in building your own analysis, you're still consuming that information, but you are making it yours. You're metabolizing it and you're connecting those dots. So now you can make independent judgments on things, which means now you're really ready to start taking action because you're not simply taking orders from the people you're getting awareness from, but actually you've metabolized and alchemized the wisdom and now you can apply it. But that step is critical. We have to build our analysis. And that's not like one thing that you do across a six-month period and now you're done and you're prepared for action. (laughs) Building your analysis is this reflective, dialectical thing that we're doing constantly. We're constantly looping back and shifting and inquiring into ourselves and our own biases and what we know about the world. So it's just like, like a spiral. We're circling around and up and around and wider and looping back. So that's what building your analysis is. So to be a culture maker, to figure out how you can consciously shift the culture towards what you're dreaming of means really always building your analysis and your self-inquiry, to use your language, and understanding independently so that you can make informed judgments without being told what to do. Because that's not liberation, being told what to do. That leads into this era that we're in where conspiracy theories and disinformation is believed over and above the truth, over and above truths that are backed by facts, data. We're in this pandemic and thankfully here in Canada, we've had a unified front with our political leaders, no matter their political leanings. But in other countries around the world, there have been just this battle between scientists that are saying, these are the numbers, take a look. And then people who are governing who are saying, yeah, that's all fake news. I mean, it's so disheartening, but that's again why the building your own independent analysis is so important. I mean, it's not that we can't be fooled. We all can be. That's the nature of truth and lies is that we all fall for them from time to time. But the more independent our analysis is and the more sort of diverse and varied our information sources are, then the more that we can do that metabolizing and be less manipulable by nefarious political actors. (laughs) That's the word, nefarious. Nefarious, for real. Nefarious. So as you have continued to develop your work, you came up with a feminist lifestyle empowerment brand, which I think is amazing because it's a model that I followed as well as a budding coach and followed different leaders in the space, you know, wearing the slim dresses Mm. and manufacturing authority in the marketplace through using different means. And tell me the journey that it took to get to Fleb. Sure. So Fleb is this marketing phenomena or this marketing formula or a success formula that I call the female lifestyle empowerment brand. And I say female because it's about displaying mandatory femininity, not about being who you actually are. But my journey was, I learned from all of those teachers, right? So when I came online in like 2008, 2009, and started taking trainings about how to copyright, how to market, how to blog, and tried to figure out how to run an online business, that is the model that I trained in. And I didn't even know it was like a distinct thing. It was just the default. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't get traction with it. I tried to be that thing. I tried to appear that thing. I tried to perform that 
formula. And what would happen is I could do it for two or three months and then I would just be completely exhausted and have to retreat for three months. And then I would like rally and do it again work my own marketing system and then have to retreat. And I just couldn't get any traction because like stopping and starting, you'll never get any momentum. But what I thought at the time was clearly there's something wrong with me. I have some sort of success problem because I know how to do this. I just won't, can't make myself do it. I have success problem. I'm self-sabotaging. I have an upper limits problem. And looping around this sort of self-toxic self-help cul-de-sac, trying to figure out what was wrong with me, why I couldn't get some traction on something that I knew how to do. and what happened is I just sort of snapped. I was like, I'm done with this. I, I can't do this anymore. And I went and got a job with a company that had you know $50 million in annual revenue. And I was leading a marketing program and had a $300,000 marketing budget to spend. And it was amazing. I didn't have to like perform. I didn't have to show up and like perform relentless positivity and turn everything into a life lesson and show up with like well-groomed hair. I, I just didn't have to do any of those things. And all I had to do was reduce the risk for the buyers, which meant educating them on this B2B solution that the company was marketing. So it was just so refreshing. And then... I got pregnant with my then fifth child about two years into that job where all I had to do was educate and reduce risk in my marketing. And I reached sort of this tipping point where this corporate job that I had wasn't going to be tenable any longer. And I was like, okay, so I need to restart my online business. And I had been offline for two years. You couldn't find me online. Every social media page I had was deactivated. You could not find me. So I came back and I started putting my toe in and catching up on people's social media and blogs and came back to the world. And I just suddenly saw it so differently. Like it was like I had lived in a different country for two years and I came back and like my, in the meantime, my neighborhood had been subdivided and I didn't recognize any of the landmarks. It was familiar and different at the same time. And that little shock of recognition and lack of recognition helped me see something that I couldn't see before. And this time I looked at it and I was like, oh, it's not me, right? This is like coded white supremacy. This is leveraging privilege. This is leveraging thin privilege. This is all the things. This is why I couldn't do it consistently. It wasn't because I had an upper limits problem. It was because I had a conscience and a sense of justice and the internal friction between my marketing and my personal beliefs was why I couldn't maintain that those marketing structures. So that was like that shock. And then there was a particular event, Lisa, that happened. And I don't name people publicly. And there's a reason I don't name people publicly. And it's because I want us to pay attention to the patterns and the systems and the structures. It's not about bad apples. It's about like the whole bin of apples and the whole container. And I want us to look at our own complicity first. And because that's where we have the most amount of control. So I'm going to tell you about this big famous brand, but I'm not going to name her specifically because I want us to think about the pattern rather than her in particular. So at the time that I came back and I was noticing this, she sent an email and you talked about how I have five black children. Mm -hmm. So she sent this email and it was right after Eric Garner, his killers, and I use the word deliberately, his killers were not indicted. And there were protests in the city that this particular person lived in. And it's all in the news. And she sent an email out saying, if you are outraged and in pain, 
and you want to learn how to transform your pain into power and transform injustice into action, I've got a video for you. And like this email was like, oh my goodness, finally, like these people who are branding themselves as change makers, somebody is taking this seriously, is offering some leadership and not just ignoring it. And I really do want to know how to transform my pain into power and my outrage into action. This is exactly what I want to know in this moment in time. So I clicked through and it was clearly a video that had been like recorded some months prior. And it was her, like, there was a little intro and she was like lip syncing to Megan Trainers all about that bass while her makeup artist powdered her face. And then she goes into the lesson that she's teaching us. And she's talking about reading a question from a viewer about an unpleasant coworker and who really gets you down. And how do you not let it get you down? How do you shift your mindset so it doesn't drag you down? Mm-hmm. And then she, right. And then the, the female lifestyle empowerment brand prescribed the Buddhist practice of Tonglen. And said, like, if you practice this, it's going to shift your mentality and you'll stay in a positive space. Oh, boy. And I was physically shaking. Like, physically shaking. Because I was like, you bait and switched us. You literally used our outrage over Eric Garner's death and his death with impunity like to get us to click through to this video. You're a white person. You use black death as clickbait to get us to click through this video. Then you culturally appropriate it. And the video wasn't even about the issue at hand. You just like packaged it that way. Something you'd already created. And would this be the video? And this is why I was shaking. Would this be the video that you would make for this moment in time if that could happen to someone in your family? That would not be the video that I made, right? So I was just like shaking and I realized like, it's not just that people are using privilege to get attention, either using their white privilege, their thin privilege, their heterosexual privilege, like whatever privilege status is that they're getting and they're bundling that up into a success formula. It's that they're actually leveraging black death for cool points. In that moment, the whole thing came into focus and I was like, I am out. And I wrote my first essay on the female lifestyle empowerment brand. And before that, I hadn't even called it the female lifestyle empowerment brand. I was calling it something else. I hadn't quite landed on the name. And I wrote this essay about the female lifestyle empowerment brand and how it's toxic, how it's harmful to us, how it's harmful to our culture. And not just harmful to us, it's also like an instrument of perpetuating a harmful culture. Like it's reinforcing the culture. And when we're doing these things, that's what we're unconsciously doing. We're co-signing an unjust culture. We're co-signing violence. And I wrote this. And as I wrote it, I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be deeply unpopular. I will never get any business ever again. And here I'm trying to launch this fledging business. Like I will get no business. Nobody's going to want to hear from me. I'm going to lose like my tiny list. And all of those things did happen. My list cut in half in a week. All of those things did happen and it got shared 20,000 times in a week. And I'd been offline for two years because there was something real there. And that was enough of a, you know what? Honestly, it didn't even matter if I win. Like it was enough of a win to keep me going, but I didn't even need to win because I was like, this is just the truth and this is where I'm going. And I won't be popular. I won't make any money and so be it. I'm going to say what needs to be said. So that's where it came about. (laughs) Wow. Long story. It's a long story, but it's very important because it it forms or informs what we're going to focus on when we come back from the sponsored message. 
I'm in conversation with Kelly Deals, feminist marketing consultant, and we'll hear more from her after this. Hi, my name is Candice, and I've been part of Lisa's Patreon community for a bit now. And in that time, I have gotten to see how unswerving her commitment is to the process of self-knowing, of self-awareness. And that in itself is special. But she also combines that with the social issues of our time, with the broader social picture in which we find things like structural oppression, racism, all the other ways that there are dominant and marginalized identities and realities for people. So it's this really, to me, cool situation where the writing prompts and the questions and all that is offered there is a chance to get to know a particular life, your particular life, my particular life, within the landscape of these really immense systems and realities. It's a way to locate and get to know oneself within all of that. And I find that there aren't that many places to get both contemplative and plugged in to social justice. And for someone like me, who's drawn to these ways of working, these ways of inner work, and is drawn to activism, I just really appreciate how all that Lisa has brought together here. And so I am hoping that more people can become aware of what Lisa brings to the world and get connected to what she's up to in Patreon. Thank you. We're back. I'm going to continue this conversation with Kelly Deals. It's fascinating because the female lifestyle empowerment brand, Fleb for short, that's a name that you came up with. And naming things is a social justice issue. Can you speak more to that? Sure. If you think about it, naming is always about power. I'm going to use a negative example here, but so many cities around the world in colonized nations don't have their original names. So many places don't have their original names. So whoever names a thing is making a statement about power. Power doesn't always have to be negative and domineering and abusive and genocidal and colonial, right? It doesn't have to be that way. But I bring that up to show you the power of naming. And it's also, if you think about things, Having a name for certain concepts makes those things real. And one of the ways I think about that is with the word mansplaining. So in my 20s and 30s, I often had this experience where I felt like men were talking down to me or not taking me seriously. And then I went in my toxic self-help cul-de-sac again and thought, like, <laughs> what is it about me that is attracting this behavior? Am I projecting insecurity? Do I have self-worth issues? I need to be more assertive. I need to learn different communication styles because these men are not taking me seriously and they're talking down to me. And often they don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> but I thought I had a problem. And then Rebecca Solnit wrote this 
essay, which then became a book called Men Explain Things to Me, and the feminist blogosphere explained that experience, named that experience of having men narrate your topic of knowledge back to you when they've read a review about it, (laughs) as though they're the expert, as mansplaining. And as soon as that word came into focus, I realized like that thing that had happened to me had nothing to do with me, Kelly Deals, and whether or not I was knowledgeable, smart, or what I was or was not projecting. Men were treating me like that because I was a woman and it was a power expression. So as soon as I had the word, it didn't affect me subjectively the way it had before. I wasn't turning it back on myself. I was like, oh, I see what you're doing here. You're mansplaining. And as soon as I named it, the power dynamic shifted. So when we have those names, we can shift power dynamics in really powerful ways. And names give us an ability to think things that were not thinkable before. (laughs) So they make something that was invisible, visible. So this is also something that social justice traditions, liberation traditions, feminist traditions have always done, given names to experiences that lacked language before. And one of the most famous words that does this is the word intersectional, which Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw invented to name the specific intersection between racism and like misogyny, gender discrimination that Black women uniquely face. And so she wanted to talk about the intersectionality of Black identity and woman identity and how that compounds bias in Black women's lives and experiences. And it was around a specific legal case that she coined this language for. But it's become a really important word. But before we had that word, many people might have had that experience, but that word helps call it into focus and point at it. And now we can actually organize solutions and protest against it. But if we don't have the word, how do we even protest it? So having the words and the languages for our lived experiences is critical to shifting the power dynamics around those lived experiences and changing whether or not they're going to happen. It's a brilliant form of culture making as well to be able to name something, especially if it's an injustice. So it's not just about naming a program that you're going to do a launch campaign around and getting people to buy, but it's around naming the injustice and giving language to that. Right. So even think of like the the word rape culture or microaggressions or gaslighting or derailing. Having language gives us the ability to protest an injustice and do something about it. And there is, however, that overlap between this is also a really useful thing to do in your brand, to have a specific brand language so you can get your ideas across. So there is a, a useful intersection there. But the place that I'm most interested in is the culture-making place of like, how are we going to shift this culture towards justice? We need the language of justice. And someone who does a beautiful job of explaining this is Sonia Renee Taylor in her book, The Body is Not an Apology. She uses language as a metaphor for justice and for injustice. And so just as I say, none of us have been born into a culture of justice. She says, none of us are born speaking the language of justice. We have to learn it. And some people are more immersed in speaking it because they have identities where injustice is visited upon them regularly. And so people like Black people, queer folks, trans folks, women, people with different marginalized identities, and all the intersections of those identities might speak justice more fluently than people with fewer of those identities. 
But she says that's our challenge is to learn to speak the language of justice. And I'm sort of taking it one more step forward and saying, actually, we need to invent the language of justice as well. And as we invent the language of justice, how do we then steward that phrase so that it's not co-opted and so that we're not erased? So for example, Moya Bailey, who coined the phrase massage noir, has said in an interview that she's frequently erased when people use the term. And so how do we gift this term to the marketplace and say, hey, here it is, here's the language without being erased? This is something that pains me deeply when people get erased from their own knowledge traditions. And of course, power is going to determine who gets credited and who doesn't get credited. So many times I've raised the word intersectional and used it as an example of culture making and told the story of Dr. Crenshaw. And people are like, oh, I didn't know she invented that. And it's like, that pains me. That is her contribution, right? And there's so many of us who aren't compensated with money and fame and what have you. But one of the ways we can compensate people for that intellectual and emotional labor is by calling their names and calling that forward into our lineages. So one of the things I recommend to people to do is if you come up with a name, I don't say that you should go trademark it, though certainly that's your prerogative. You can go do that. But what I say is you should immediately write a blog post about it and prominently display the date. And so all roads lead back to that. And if anyone ever did a search to see when words were being used or the frequency with which words were being used, you would be the origin, right? You'd be the source of that word. That doesn't mean that people won't erase you. They will. They 100% will. But you do have to leave some breadcrumbs for people to find you and use it regularly and train people around you that it's a justice practice and a feminist practice to cite each other. And honestly, it helps us learn and build knowledge. Because that's how things don't get forgotten. We have to remember them forward by calling people's names. And it is actually a personal issue for me right now because there are people who are erasing me from something that I invented called feminist copywriting. And it pains me enormously. And it is what happens to people who don't have dominant identities. And it's even what you see in people who do have dominant identities. White men often go into the fringes and take a concept or take an entire body of work and rebrand it with a different name and get very rich off of it because that's valuable cultural language transmissions. But I would just say it's not possible to make it so that people won't appropriate your work. But what we have to then do as a culture collectively is start making it a practice to call the people's names who've influenced us, which is exactly what you did at the beginning of this podcast deliberately, right? We're calling people's names. That's how we call wisdom forward. That's how we carry wisdom. That's how we teach each other. We just talked about the importance of names. We can't even know something unless we have language for it. So this is how we build whole traditions of wisdom is with those languages and by giving honor to the people who've contributing those building blocks of language so that we can speak that language of justice. We have to cite each other. We We have have to. to. Yeah, we do. We do. And as a woman who is of African descent, one of the things that I now do deliberately and purposefully is I cite Black, Indigenous, and other women of color who are doing this work. Because if I want people to cite me, I've got to 
model. I have to model this. You've got to model it. Um, yeah. So Sarah Ahmed, this is one of the people I mentioned as one of my influences. She has a citation policy in which she only cites women and women of color. Only. So we don't have to be as dogmatic as that, but that you can see there's a whole revelation there. I think even there was a little controversy with Ava DuVernay, the director, where a male director threatened to sue her because she was only hiring women directors for her series, Queen Sugar. And so he threatened to sue her for discrimination because she was only hiring women directors. And she basically, she was delighted. She basically told him like, bring it on because then (laughs) that would set the precedent for me to sue all of the Hollywood studios who've hired 98% male directors for the last 50 to 100 years. (laughs) Please sue me. Please do it. (laughs) And then the whole thing died down. Of course, of course, of course. Again, naming something, right? Right. And what I find fascinating about names and how we use words is that you have a a blog post where you talk about fonts. And fonts are the what we choose to make our words look a certain way on pages. So just like naming helps to give language to injustice, font design and what we choose as our fonts to represent ourselves is also a feminist issue. Can you talk more about that? Right. So fonts are like the air that we breathe on the internet. It's actually not possible for us to have an internet if we're not choosing a font in which the words will display. If there's no words, there's no internet, there's no communication. So culture making is often tiny acts of doing it differently. So we can just use like the Google, the free fonts. But even within the Google free fonts, there are fonts that have been developed by women, that have been developed by trans folks. And we can like specifically choose those fonts. So when I was recently redeveloping my website, I went to the website designer and developer and said, okay, I know we're going to do some new typography. We're going to probably pick two or three fonts that we now use for headings and bodies and all those kinds of things. I specifically, if I'm going to buy a font and I'm going to invest in something, I want it to come from my justice feminist communities. I want you to try and find me fonts that have been developed by people of color. I want you to find me fonts that have been developed by women, by trans folks. And we're going to have the look that we want, but for sure there are fonts that have been developed by those community members who are vastly underrepresented in the design world, but who are creating amazing work. So if I'm going to spend money in my business, I try to leverage every single line item so that it contributes to growing the resources of our community members. So if I'm going to go to a restaurant, I'm going to a restaurant that's owned by Black folks. Or if I'm going to go buy a chair for my office, I'm going to a store that's owned by a woman. Like I'm going to try and leverage every line item that I'm already going to spend the money on to make it a contribution, a culture-making contribution. So that's what I said about fonts. And I rallied up some resources where you can go through different databases and find fonts that have been developed by women of color, by white women, by Asian women, by trans women. And you can go through and you can find exactly what you're looking for. And when you buy that font, you're now supporting a community member and growing the resources we need to shift that culture towards justice. So it's the tiny act that can, if we just consistently do it, can make a big difference. And someone listening might be saying, come on now, what's the big deal? Like, just get a font. Like, what's the big deal? Now we're going to get fonts from this person. Like, just whatever. Why is that? I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. First, it's the creative objects, right? If we're consuming culture, 
who is getting reimbursed for producing culture. And then that determines who's making culture in the most literal sense of culture objects like books and fonts and paintings. That is significant. And from a business point of view, this is how we get money into the hands of people who have been financially systemically (laughs) deprived. And so I have a certain amount of business expenses every year, tens of thousands of dollars that I can leverage to make it do double duty as a culture-making contribution. So I was going to spend the money anyway, and I'm still going to get exactly what I need. But maybe now 50% of my business expenses are going to get in the hands of people of color or women or trans folks. So there's a compound effect there, financially and culturally. And that's why on your website, right at the front, money is a justice issue. It is. It is. So... The last question I have for you, Kelly, is a question I ask all my guests. And one of the phrases that has really resonated with those who follow my work is to stumble bravely. And in Mm -hmm. fact, people use it as a um, farewell greeting, (laughs) whether they're in my community on Patreon or whether they're on Instagram. It's like, yeah, stumble bravely. And so my question to you, Kelly, is what final tip do you have to that person listening? who wants to become anti-bias, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive, what advice would you have for them to stumble bravely? I think I would come back to Dr. Barbara J. Love's framework for a liberatory consciousness and say, keep building your analysis, keep learning, keep leaning in. The more you build out that analysis, the more you're going to realize all the different ways that you were wrong or misinformed. And that's actually one of the things that happens with liberation. You get liberated from that and you get to be in a new space and do things differently as a culture maker. So stumble bravely to me means keep building your analysis, which inevitably is going to bring you face to face with some hard truths about how you were living. And that's liberation, honestly, because now you don't have to do it like that anymore. Kelly, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate you. I appreciate you, Lisa. And we were in conversation with Kelly Deals, feminist marketing consultant. My name is Lisa Renee Hall and stumble bravely. <laughs>